Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Investors who are familiar with Warren Buffett, and that's probably everybody now, uh, will have heard the term moat used pretty often. And the concept is regularly referred to these days in a world where some of the biggest companies just didn't exist 10 years ago. But what is a moat really? How does it work? And how can you identify its strength when looking at a company that you might like to invest in? Today, I'm at the Morningstar Individual Investor Conference in Sydney, where Morningstar Director of Equity Research, Matthew Hodge, has presented on exactly this topic. He's kindly agreed to talk us through his views on moats and even provide a number of really practical examples today for us. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. So Matt, how would you describe a moat in investment terms? Give it the basic version. Yeah, so quantitatively, it's the ability for a business to gen- generate returns on invested capital above its cost of capital, right? So, uh, and do that consistently. Um, qualitatively, it's gonna come from one of the five sources for us, right? So it's intangible assets, switching cost, cost advantage, efficient scale, and what's the other one? <laughs> uh, let me have a look. I know what the next one is. The last one is going to be just scale, isn't it? No. No? No. We've got cost advantages, network effects. Network effects. We're after the network yeah, I'm effects. A, I'm a poor mining analyst, so <laughs> I don't need to see too many network effect businesses outside of my committee, yeah. So the business has got to have one of those five things, right? So if the fundamental premise is if you're a business generating attractive, strong returns, competitors are going to see that and they're going to want to come in and compete with you. And if there are low barriers to entry, such as like a steel mill where someone could just decide to spend a lot of money and build a brand new steel mill that's bigger than yours, that's going to be a tough business long term. So you want to have something that's unique and differentiated, right? And it's no good saying, okay, you know, we like business X because they've got a really good manager and they've done a great job, right? Like if a good business you know, if a bad business and a good manager meet, it's usually the business that, that wins out, right? So we're looking for intrinsic things that make those businesses able to generate attractive returns for a long period of time. And for a narrow moat stock, it's at least 10 years. And for a wide moat stock, it's at least 20 years. So it's a pretty high bar and most businesses in the world don't get anywhere near it. So It's a, it's a fantastic analogy just the mental imagery is perfect, right? Mm. You're, here's my castle, here's the moat around mm-hmm. my castle. If yeah. it's a little moat, you know, the guys are coming through yeah. with their well, hatchets and whatnot pretty quickly. And if it's a huge yeah. moat, you should be fine. A couple of, you know, yeah. crocodiles in there or something and keep people out for a while. Yeah, even Donald Trump picked it up. I don't know if you saw that. He was talking about wanting to build a moat between Mexico and fill it with crocodiles, <laughs> or alligators, I guess. But um, That's yeah. very Donald Trump. Yeah, that's... Yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's what you want, right? You just want to have the widest moat possible so people can't attack your castle. That's that's that is the analogy. Yep. It's a, so let's talk about the types of moat that you've yep. identified and how you how you evaluate those. Mm-hmm. So you've outlined them all. <laughs> got them a bit back to front. We've yep. forgotten them, no, but that's okay. cool. Yep. We've got them all sorted. So talk to me about intangible assets. Right. I mean. Merely the fact that you described them as intangible makes them a bit harder to conceptualise and understand for people. What's a good example of a company that's got strong intangibles? Yeah, so intangibles are things like brands, patents, leases, licences, things like that. Uh, just off the top of my head, you know, a brand like um, 
a business like LVMH, uh, which is a global company, mm. Louis Vuitton, Moa Hennessy. Uh, they have got some fantastic brands. Um, how does it? How do? How do we know that a business has an intangible? The brand allows that business to charge a higher price than someone else. And the example I used in in the um, presentation before was Dulux. Um, it's not a business that's on the ASX anymore, unfortunately. I think it's a pretty good one, but people are prepared to pay ten to fifteen dollars for a tin of paint from Dulux as opposed to their competitive brand. There's really not a lot of differences at all in terms of the, the product. It does the same thing, but because they've put in the minds of the consumer, you know, worth doing with Dulux, why would you risk it? This is a task that you have to do every five or 10 years. No one really wants to do it. The price of the paint is a small fraction of the total cost. You know, if you do it yourself, it's the labor, that's the painful part rather than the extra 10 or $15. If you pay someone else to do it, it's really the labour that's the expensive part. So people have got no qualms in uh, paying a little bit more for that. The thing with an intangible is, like particularly a brand, you should be able to measure that. So if someone says they've got a brand, well, how does it manifest? You know, And it should manifest in the financial statements. You should be able to see that the business can charge a higher price than competing products. And I don't mean, um, you know, Qantas charges a little bit more than Virgin, but it offers a somewhat premium service, so it doesn't allow Qantas to generate uh, excess returns on capital. Um, so that's kind of how I would think about intent. The LVMH example is exceptional for anyone who mm. has ever bought Moet, who's ever bought a Louis Vuitton handbag. Mm. You know that they both cost a hell of a lot more than your average handbag yeah, or your average bottle of uh, sparkling wine. Yeah, but th- there are some additional costs with that, but mm. you can still see it in the margin, right? You can, I think the margins in that business are fantastic, you know, so that's where it shows up. And there's two kind of key... Um, business strategies, right? One is high margin, low volume, and the other is like low margin, high volume, right? And LVMH is at one end of the spectrum, the high margin, low volume side, and something like a Bunnings is at the other end, you know? There's some interesting stuff out there about how they manage their supply chain, certainly on the uh, Louis Vuitton side, in terms of ensuring that unsold stock or poor quality mm. stock you know stuff that doesn't hit the mark right we yes. remember the really trendy bag and it just didn't yeah. hit the mark and people didn't buy it that yeah. we don't have to discount it and therefore devalue our brand yeah. and the um the story i had heard was that they will take them out to sea and sink them which is fascinating from an environmental perspective but a friend of mine used to work in supply chain for yeah. exactly that business and he said no we used to yeah. take them out to western sydney and shred them and that's probably the right thing to do um if you look at some other um you know, lower down the food chain kind of wannabe luxury brands, mm. you know, and Oriton was a good example of this where they became reliant upon the discount chain. And once, mm. once, once you, um, once you're reliant on your sales for that route to market in the minds of the consumer, you've trained them that a, it's lower value and B I can buy it cheaper. So, and it's all about the brand. So you've, in, in the luxury space, you've really got to do whatever you can to protect that brand. Yeah. Protect your moat. That's your moat. That, that, is, that is it. So protect your ability to charge a premium price so you don't want to train consumers that this thing's going to be on sale um, at some point down the track. It's yeah. generally not a good thing. In the case of LB, ever. Yeah. It's never going to be on sale. Yeah. Don't wait for that day. No. It's not coming for you. And 
and that shows the power too, right? Because you know, you can imagine department stores maybe in a different era <laughs> but wanting to discount that stuff to generate excitement and get people through the doors and and you, you do see this with uh, you know Woolworths and Coles and um, Dan Murphy's where they've got the ability to shift a lot of volume for a manufacturer of consumer goods for example but you know they put you on special and they can really screw down your uh, margin. So one of the things I'm, I'm looking for is someone to give me an example of a business that's had Coles and Woolworths as its two biggest customers that's, that's done well. Yeah. I can't think of any examples. So Coke is probably, it's, it's a very strong brand, right? Consumer. Like Coca-Cola Company, which just sells the sugar water, doesn't have much capital in the business, owns the IP. That's where the real value is. Um, the bottler companies tend to do okay. You know, they've got all the bottling and the distribution assets. So it's a, it's a bit asset heavy. But in Australia, like the bottling part, Coca-Cola Amatil's been screwed down. So it's basically just earning its cost of capital, maybe a little bit more. And if they can do that to Coke, which is the number one selling product, they can do it to anything. That's fascinating. And it leads somewhat into the next one, which is switching costs, mm. right? So. It seems like an obvious one. So if, I, if they're really high switching costs, I'll probably stick with that product regardless of how much I love it. Yeah. Um, can you give us an example of where this plays out really well in practice? Um, and also some much-loved company, we call it much-loved stock at the moment, where you don't think it's there. Yeah, so I guess Cochlear is a really good example. So the switching costs exist on two levels. So one is when the actual implant gets made. There are clinics that do that and obviously professionals that install this, highly trained. You don't really want to be switching from one product to another, right? You know the product. And this happens with kind of uh, medical devices where there might be two or three kind of players in an individual market and this could be like hip replacements or whatever. You know, when it comes to medical devices, it tends to be a few. Um, and the, the surgeons which put them in, they train up in one, and that's where they're comfortable, maybe two, you know, it's simpler. Um, because cochlear is so strong and dominant, they've also been able to say to the, the clinics, you have to just work with us. So they've got big market share from that part, the switching costs on that side. On the other side is once you've actually got, the, to, to put the cochlear implant in, they drill out your cochlear, right? So. It is in the side of your head and it's not coming out. That to me is a huge switching cost. <laughs> doesn't get higher than that. Really, no, I don't think so. Having to go inside your head. Yes, mm. yeah. And um, that is a long tail of revenue for Cochlear. So 26% of their revenue comes from upgrades and processes and, and things like that. People are on the platform. That's going to continue for a long period of time. And as more uh, people get added you know, more patients have got a cochlear implant, that market grows and over time it becomes a larger proportion of the total. And that's the really, really high quality revenue stream because it's gonna be there for a long period of time. That's a great example. You did also mention in your presentation one where you just don't think mm. switching costs are reflect a strong moat for this company mm. and it is a big, big holding in nav trade. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is really? much loved. It was, after, I think it was our most pay. Yeah. Wow. I think it was our most bought stock last year. That's scary. 
<laughs> so talk us through why it's scary, because this is something people really need to know. Well, it's scary, well, I guess it probably shouldn't surprise me, because if, if something's popular, mm. then, I mean, that would reflect in the, in the purchasing patterns of, mm. of those people. Uh, if you go back to uh, Peter Lynch went up on Wall Street, you know, what's what's the stock? Well, the stock that he liked was like, you know, um, Crown Cork and Seal. What do they do? They steal bottles, you know, like a real boring name, you know. Something with an X in it, hate that. What he really hates is the hottest stock, you know. Afterpay, snappy name, share price has done really well. That's a couple of negatives in my book. The Putting that to one side and just talking about the business itself. So consumer lending with no credit checks, like that doesn't get me excited, right? Like that makes me scary, right? People talk about the risk associated with investing in the banks. That's with mortgages with, you know, loan to valuation ratios of 70% or less, right? Predominantly, that's what's in the bank's asset book. These things are not that, you know, and they're, they're small loans and there's turnover and all the rest of that, but... It, the assets turn over really quickly because they get paid off in six weeks or whatever it is generally. But we've not seen a cycle with this business. It has to fund itself with access to debt and equity markets. That won't always be favourable. And there's just no real barrier to entry. Like to to download another app. I mean, it's a little bit like those, the, the, food, um, the food delivery companies. You know, as long as you... When you get the merchants, it's actually not that hard to, to download another app and just go, oh, I'm going to choose this one and not that one. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. And, you know, yeah, it's like for the, from the consumer's point of view, it's not hard to switch. From mm. the merchant's point of view, well, you've still got Visa, MasterCard. You've got seriously big players in the payment space, the credit card companies, the banks. You're taking all of those on. And... Um, it conjures up uh, images of, of um, when when cars started out. There were like a hundred car manufacturers in the US, right? Going way, way back. The idea that you could pick GM and Chrysler as the winners, you know, like good luck, right? There's a there's going to be a big field in this space. This one's one of which there will be many. You know, you're betting that this one's going to be the winner, right? So funnily enough, uh, with our probably more traders than investors, but yeah. Split It and Zip are the other two that they and they tend to trade in and not tend. Yeah. So many many people have bought Afterpay and detailed it, um, but plenty of others are trading those three stocks, trying to pick a winner. And there may be a short term play, but um, but it's quite interesting that you don't think the moats are there, and that is um, in addition to the regulatory risk, which is an entirely well, that, different concept. That is the other thing as well. So I think their margin is uh, kind of 4%, I think, from memory. So that's that's the, the merchant margin that they get. So if they if someone purchases a $100 pair of thongs, you know, 96... <laughs> it's quite a pair of thongs. <laughs> $96 will go to the vendor, you know, and, and $4 will go to Afterpay. And so long as that gets paid back, you know, that's their, that's their margin, right? And if, if you're, you know turning over that capital, you know, three paid in six weeks, turning over that capital 12 times a, a year, that, that looks pretty good, right? But there's also bad debts associated which eat into that. There's the cost of administration. So 
you know, the net margin, well, it's, it's, the business is loss-making, right? So it needs to get a lot bigger for that net margin to grow, which means taking more risk on the lending side, but it also means you become a big, bigger portion of consumer spending and you're going to get the attention of the regulator. That has to happen. Um, they have to grow, you know, so there's plenty of risk around it. That's, um, that's going to be very interesting and certainly food for thought for quite a few of our investors, I think. So we forgot about the network effect, which is hilarious, but it is such a popular concept these days. Mm. Can you give us an example of a company that has a network effect that's been around for a really long time and is going to be very familiar with our investors because they use it all the time? Google. Uh, <laughs> so the example that you gave in your present was ASX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, you just... I was thinking on a different track. <laughs> Google has been around for a while now. It like has, two, yeah, that's a fair point too. three, you know, search is pretty good. Mm. But yeah, uh, markets have been around far, far longer than that, right? I guess if you look in the tech space, a lot of the network effect businesses have you know, like Facebook has not really been around for that long. Um, there's a lot of innovation in that space and the cycles are pretty f- you know, fast in some cases. But trading things, that's been around for, you know, day dot basically. And, and trading things in a central place where you've got more liquidity and price transparency, that's all good, right? So, um, you know, the, the, the key with a network effect business is... is do the existing pool of users get benefit from new users joining, right? Yeah. And with with an exchange, with a financial exchange, the benefit is clear. Mm-hmm. There's more liquidity. There's a, a smaller spread between the price to buy and sell, which means the actual cost to invest are lower. Um, so there's a natural gravitation towards whatever is the most liquid pool. And this can be for commodities. You know, we see it with CME Group, uh, London Stock Exchange, New York Stock Exchange, um, futures exchanges, they tend to operate in that way. They're very strong businesses. I mean, the difficulty is, you know, like if the ASX wanted to double its, you know, earnings, good luck. You know, it's it's very difficult to do that, but they'll chug along nicely um, and you'd feel pretty comfortable owning it at the right price. <clears throat> Always the most important. Yeah. So... Strong cost advantage is the one you've mentioned. I mean, obviously, that is something you want to consider with any stock that you're buying. But can you give us some examples of where you see companies with strong cost advantages? Yeah. So the one that springs most uh, quickly to mind is is Bunnings. So in West Farmers, um, <clears throat> they've really got scale on the purchasing side. Um, and because they're so much larger than their next biggest competitor, they can get stuff in their shop more cheaply than than the other guys. So um, that's definitely one. Um, I thought they were an interesting example when you were talking about moats, when we saw the Masters experience, right? Oh. It was, that was brutal to watch. If you want Absolutely to... brutal. It was short and sharp and very painful. Mm. Um, yeah, well, we almost chose the wrong person. <laughs> it's um, Greg Foran ran, went and ran um, um, Walmart, right? Mm. So he was the other guy that was in the running to take over at the time, and, there you and go. Uh, 
they passed him over. Do you think it would have been a different outcome? Were I you suspect so. Okay. Yeah, but you know that's playing out in an alternative universe and not this one. So <laughs> I'm not sure he'd be disappointed to be in Walmart. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, interesting. Um, what gets me excited about that is you've actually had someone come in and try and break it down, and they failed. In my view, Woolworths probably did the wrong thing, like putting their tail between their legs and going home, because they really do need something other than supermarkets. There's quite a vulnerability and reliability. I see they're spinning other things off now. So it's really going to be super concentrated on supermarkets. And, you know, you've seen what happens when Aldi and you know, little into the UK, they're really decimated uh, returns for Tesco. So it's it's going to be interesting how that one plays out. Um, but yeah, I mean, even Woolworths, like we were talking about before, screwing down Coca-Cola, they've got buying power, real buying power. And they uh, they exert that influence at uh, regular intervals. They, they do, yeah. yeah. So scale is the final one that you've mentioned. This is a term, and I find this fascinating, Every company mentions the importance of scale, and particularly when they're in startup phase and don't have any scale, they talk about it a lot. Um, where do you see great examples of efficient scale? Mm. Yeah, uh, airports are really probably the cleanest example I can think of. Um, Auckland Airport, Auckland is like a discrete area, right? Mm. Um, not a huge population, a bit over a million. Uh, it's the key gateway to New Zealand. Uh, it's unlikely that they're going to outgrow a single airport probably in my lifetime. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. But for intensive purposes, single airport business. So then the question is, is does a regulator allow me to charge a reasonable price such that I can earn a little bit more excess return? So you're never going to get fantastic returns out of an asset like that. Um, but it's going to be pretty consistent and pretty steady, you know, population growth, more people traveling, you know, they'll carve out steady growth and they'll make, make a reasonable return on that. Um, so yeah, efficient scale is where you've got a market that's discrete, that makes sense to just be served by one or a couple of different players. So they tend to be pretty, uh, asset heavy businesses. So like, um, toll roads, railways, uh, pipelines, gas pipelines, oil pipelines. Um, you know, if you take APA as an example, you know, it's got the Moomba to Brisbane gas pipeline. If they want to add a little bit of capacity, they can do that with compressors or, add, you know, add a little bit of um, capacity on the pipeline. If if someone was to say, I'm going to build a Moomba to Brisbane pipeline as well, it would there would be overcapacity instantly and returns would be destroyed for both players. So that's the thing that keeps them out is that the, the would-be competitor understands that if they enter the market, so if someone was to build a second airport in Auckland, like, good luck to you, right? Like, there's a huge fixed cost, and if you've halved up the volume, then that's going to be difficult. It's a, I think that's an excellent example and uh, very apparent to people how that would work as a moat. Matthew, NAB Trader investors are fortunate enough to get access to Morningstar Research through the platform, so... Mm. Lucky then. Um, but you guys also produce a whole lot of fantastic content and insights. You obviously hold an event like today, which is the Individual Investor Conference. Yeah. How do people keep up to date with what you guys are doing and find out more about it? Yeah, so for retail advice, uh, re- retail clients, 
um, you know, mum and dad investors, probably the best way to do that is to look on our website, morningstar.com.au. Um, we've got a lot of our videos there. There's there's uh, there's a free portion which has got market commentary and news and things like that. And there's obviously the paid portion which has our uh, research hosted on it, and including your Money Weekly newsletter, which has been around since the seventies, I think. And Ian and Peter. Beautiful. Yeah. Matthew Roach from Morningstar, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me also. As always, we hope this episode has been helpful to you in your journey to creating wealth. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, we do love to hear from you. So please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.